0: known as Mama Gloria. And uh, I'm here, I've been here for since the prehistoric existence. And uh, transgender women have been going through a lot. I mean a lot. And uh, we have been thrown under the bus. We have been tarred and feathered. We've had our throat slit. And it doesn't make sense. And people, we need to stand up and acknowledge ourselves. Everybody's beautiful, and I am so proud of my young generation because you all hold the key. I didn't have this when I was coming up. Nobody heard of me. I didn't have a center on Halston. Walk proud. A lot of trans girls, they're scared to come out and be seen. I want to be seen. Take pictures. You know, take all the pictures you want to. Because I'm going to let you know I am somebody.
1: All right. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. As we continue on this Pride Month, Sad news to report in this week's edition. The voice you just heard was that of Chicago transgender icon and activist Gloria Allen. That clip came from the award-winning documentary on her life, Mama Gloria, directed by Lucina Fisher. Allen is best known for running a charm school. For homeless trans youth in Chicago, as part of the Chicago Center on Halsted Street. There, lessons on love, makeup, manners, and life were offered. For her efforts throughout her life, she received a high honor from the community. She was affectionately named by the young people under her charge as Mama Gloria. And Mama Gloria has gone on to the elders now. She died Tuesday at the age of 76. She was found in her apartment on Chicago South Side. It was reported that she died peacefully in her sleep. She is survived by several siblings, numerous nieces and nephews, and of course A whole lot of chosen family. She was born in Bowling Green, Kentucky in 1945, but she grew up in Chicago on the South Side. As a youngster, she she saw the legendary drag ball scene on the South Side flourish, and she transitioned in 1967. That's two years before Stonewall with the support and love of her mother and her grandmother. She was met with transphobic violence when she was in high school, but she rose above that to become an out and proud leader in her community. She earned an OPN. She later worked as a nursing aide at University of Chicago Hospital. And it was in her later years that she pioneered her charm school. For young transgender women, especially at the at Chicago Center. That's what earned her name and earned her acclaim. At the 2014 Trans 100 Awards, she was presented with the Living Legend Award for Janet Mock and Precious Brady Davis. And again, she became the subject of Fisher's acclaimed documentary, And in the liner notes on Twitter, just below our post for this podcast, a link will be provided to that documentary. I watched it again on Tuesday, and I'll tell you, you're going to learn a lot from it. In addition to other clips and other info on the life of this incredible woman. Mama Gloria, we will miss you. But we will also carry the torch and carry on the mission that you began. And that brings us to pride continuing. And in Outsports this week, a lot of beautiful, positive things. Jim Budzinski had a great story on the hockey prospect, Luke Prokop. Now, you know, Luke Prokop is another living example of the Sid Ziegler rule which is, it's a lot easier to perform when you're not keeping a secret. Pro Cup came out three months ago. And this season, since coming out, career totals in goals, career total in assists, career total in points, and over the weekend, the Edmonton Oil Kings' team defeated the Seattle Thunderbirds in six games to win their Western Hockey League Championship Series. I'm looking forward to seeing him in an NHL uniform in the next couple of years. Sid Ziegler had another great article on the Giants-Dodgers pride game. Now, these two teams seem to be at the forefront of how to do a pride, even though umps went rainbow. Also on Ziegler's Five Rings to Rule Them All podcast, U.S. soccer standout Christy Muis on coming out at the Olympics last year, being Super Sam Kerr's girlfriend, now if you don't know who Sam Kerr is, you better ask somebody. She's probably the best women's soccer player on the planet right now. Now Mewis wasn't in the closet, but she didn't feel the need to make a public declaration. She was like, I'm living my life, people know, why make a big deal of it? But when a picture of her and Kerr sharing a private moment after a hard-fought bronze medal match between Team USA and Team Australia in Tokyo. She told Sid she had a little bit of a change of heart.
2: One of my favorite photos from the Olympics is you two sitting on the pitch after the bronze medal game. Um, And that (laughs) photo it made the rounds pretty quickly. Um, did that kind of, that photo getting out there and people start speculating, um, did that prompt you to to share that photo that you did on Instagram? Um, yeah, I think in a way, uh, because we had, uh, we, we weren't hiding anything by any means at the Olympics, but I think it was, you know, it was such a weird time with COVID and such a weird time, Um, where I was playing with one national team and she was with her national team. Um, But I also just think that it was a very emotional moment for us and it was something that we wanted to share together and I wanted to see her after the game. So we kind of just had that moment together after. And um, I don't really think that we knew that anyone was in the stadium still because we thought it was empty. So um, I guess someone just snapped a picture of us, but I think that that was kind of, It was just like a moment where we were just sharing together, but we also didn't really care if anyone else saw it. So I think after that, I mean, um, we spent a good chunk of time together since we had been separated for so long with COVID that um, we, you know, we had so many pictures together. And I think it was just time for us to share one, share a moment that we had with each other and we just did it. We have,
1: we've had, like I said, a lot of stories on sports and pride and positive reactions, but there's been the negative reactions as well. And a lot of things to question, like certain members of the Tampa Bay Rays who were in the news cycle all last week about, we don't want to wear rainbows, and it's against our religious beliefs, against values, and so on and so forth. And there's the negative re- reactions Every time, especially a sports team says, we support our LGBTQ fans. And they got a bronze chair of derision like you wouldn't believe. And yours truly wrote about that on Tuesday. About why I'm frustrated and that little bit afraid of the aggression that we're seeing among those who are anti-LGBTQ right now. Not just in in the sports world, not just on sports, Twitter, but out there in life. and there's, of course the continuing monster movie mentality, and this monster movie mentality, be it an Emily Bridges, be it Leah Thomas, is leading people to at best ugly comments on a Twitter, or on other social media, and at worst. A hatchet job film by someone who has always been rapidly anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ. Or that hysteria and fear and aggression can come in the form of 31 armed men driving up in a U-Haul coming to intimidate a pride celebration. Now that happened in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho this past weekend. Do I want to walk into a stadium with this type of derision? Knowing that the very people who feel so uncomfortable on a pride night are going to make me feel uncomfortable the other 80 home games of a Major League Baseball season, for example. I may be running in a race where there's a transgender woman in the elite class. And people are going to jump on a plane, fly to wherever it is, and then they're going to picket them, and then possibly someone will know about me and picket me too. That's what Leah Thomas had to go through. And everybody wants to make her out to be the monster. In fact, there's a conference coming up later this month. I call it Turfapalooza. It's out in Las Vegas where where a lot of people including people such as a Ross Tucker and Emma Hilton, and even a Nancy Hogshead Maycar are going to do the same. Demonize trans people. There was a positive story as well this week done by Kenny Schultz in Outsports it sports about the 2022 Commonwealth Games and how they're setting up a Pride House at the game site in Birmingham, England. And it's going to open its doors a week before the games start. Now, first off, Pride House is a beautiful thing. It gives LGBTQ competitors and fans at these major events a place just to be themselves. They've been present at many competitions, including the Olympics and the Paralympics. It's a great thing, especially given that among the British Commonwealth of Nations, 36 of them have legal penalties against being LGBTQ. But once again, something I want to caution people, and and you hear me say this often, it is easy to pick on certain countries about anti-LGBTQ policies. For example, and rightfully so. I mean, this week FIFA had stadiums adorned in rainbow, knowing that this fall the upcoming World Cup will be in a country where being LGBTQ is punishable by death. And yes, it's easy to pick on the Middle East. Yes, we can go after Russia all day, and we should. We should, hey, we go after China and talk about their human rights record, and we should. But the 2022 Commonwealth Games are being held in a country that right now is debating maybe we should not allow conversion therapy for transgender people. They call it the country turf island for a reason. We want to talk about pride at the Commonwealth Games. How much pride can we really have when British Cycling and the world governing body for Cycling after saying that Emily Bridges was eligible to compete, then do a U-turn just because a bunch of Turfs said boo, and they were afraid of Turfs coming to a national championship to do what they did to Leah Thomas in Atlanta. Think about that. Emily Bridges wanted the opportunity to compete for her native Wales at the Commonwealth Games. People talk about, I'll have opportunities denied. Well, Emily Bridges had an opportunity denied for no other reason than hysteria and fear. Where is the pride in that? In a sane world, Emily Bridges would have her team Wales jersey on and a credential on and be in that pride house next month. And the reasons why she's not, that hysteria and fear are why I feel a little fearful and a hell of a lot upset. And that leads us to our guest this week. And it's a guest that I've looked up to as a journalist. Ina Freed is one of the top voices on the tech scene. Multi-time award winner from the SPJ, current chief technical journalist for the tech site, news site Axios. And when she's not writing about high tech, she's written about high sports. She was among the few transgender journalists who were boots on the ground at last year's Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And it's great to have this guest on board to talk about the tech scene, the legal scene, the sports scene, and all things in between. Beaming up live from the planet of Brooklyn, Ina Freed, welcome to the transporter room. Energize.
3: Thanks, Carly. Great to be here.
1: Hey, it's great to have you here. And right out of the gate, before we get into some of the deeper stuff, I want to know, what's hot in tech right now?
3: I think we're in this fascinating in-between period where the smartphone has been the thing for so long, and we've got these other things that are just coming. So you hear a lot of talk about the metaverse. That's a few years off, but I think we are headed into a world, uh, it's going to take us a couple of years to get there, of augmented reality, virtual reality, holograms, where we're going to be able to you know, close the physical distance that keeps us in other parts of the world. So that's uh, part of the excitement of the future, but it also poses new challenges that I'm hoping people will start to take seriously now while we have some
1: time. One thing I want to know about, because a big story came out over the weekend, that Google told an engineer that who claimed that their AI has gained some sentience that, okay, we, we need you to go on the reserve list for a little bit. What how much have you heard about that story? What's real? What's not real? What could it mean? I think what you're seeing is
3: what we see a lot of. Somebody is saying, hey, we got to pay attention to this. You know, we haven't reached the point where artificial intelligence, AI systems are really artificial general intelligence. That is, that, you know, these computer systems are really thinking and feeling and ready to take over the world, you know. with, with due respect to uh, the person raising the issue. I don't think we're there yet, but we absolutely should be spending more time and energy around the ethics of AI. And people have raised this, um, people at Google have raised this, some have lost their jobs uh, raising this, Dr. Gebru and several others on the responsible AI team. Um, so these are issues we should be taking way more seriously. And I'm glad the person is raising it, even if they're not right that AI systems have yet reached sentience.
1: Switching gears slightly, um, I want to read a tweet to you. This is by you (laughs) on June 2nd this year. Just sending a hug to all my trans and non-binary siblings who have started Pride Month by seeing their identities demeaned, the humanity assaulted, their rights and safety under further attack. As someone who's who's been out for a, a good share of a lifetime and has seen the ups and downs and has seen visibility come in and have seen the pitfalls that come with it, what's your thoughts when you hear that based on the landscape we're in right now? You know, it's such an
3: incredibly challenging time, because on the one hand, it's, I always quote Dickens, best of times, it's the worst of times. You have these trans youth who are in certain circumstances with supportive families and supportive communities. They're thriving. They're having their own childhoods in their gender. They're not going through the wrong puberty. That's amazing. And it's exciting. And I'm thrilled for them. But at the same time, they're getting so much attack that's really too much to ask of anyone, let alone, you know, our precious youth. And so I think I spend a lot of time thinking about how lucky, how fortunate I was when I transitioned at work. It was challenging. There weren't a lot of people out there to compare it to, but I also was able to do it in relative peace. Um, there weren't it wasn't the subject of discussion for better and worse. I mean, there's certainly pros to visibility. One of the reasons I've always wanted to be visible is so that other people can see, hey, I'm just doing my thing in my field. You know, I think it's really has an enormous benefit when you're able to do that in safety. I think the challenge right now is no one in our community is really safe. And certainly, uh, some of us are way more safe. You know, I feel super fortunate. I have a supportive community. I spend most of my time in San Francisco, uh, which is where I live. And it's, you know, comparative utopia. Um, But that's not the world that most of my community lives in. And certainly, you know, a lot of people are still getting kicked out of their house, struggling in school, you know, the, the suicide rates are distressing and off the charts. So You know, I've spent a lot of time over the last two years really just thinking, how can I, as a journalist, as a human being, how can I have the most impact to kind of help my community, both by helping the rest of the world understand us better, because I think we're horribly misunderstood with tragic consequences, but also, you know, every day I'm kind of like, how can I just give a little lift? Because it's been so hard for so many. I know it's taking a huge toll on my mental health, and I have all the support in the world. None of these laws are really taking away my freedom to move around in the places I go. But I know they're having a devastating impact. If they're having that impact on me, they're certainly having that impact on everyone else. And just, you know, what can I do to kind of let people know You know, one, you know, I see you, two, you know, it shouldn't be this way, we're going to work to change it, but the problem isn't us. So that's kind of where my head's been at the last certainly couple of years and and increasingly so over the last few months.
1: Now that led to the campaign you started a couple of months ago. Yep. And it's a campaign that, that I rang in and gave a hashtag to, and I hope it intensifies during this Pride Month letters for trans kids and in a sense you just explained what led you to start it what type of what type of um shall we say what type of reactions are you getting out there to the campaign because i remember when it first when you first started hitting into it deep in april a lot of people started going into it where do you plan to take this campaign next
3: So basically, for those that don't know, Letters for Trans Kids is basically a social media campaign saying, hey, you know, there's all this negative stuff out there. We just want to let trans kids out there know we support you. And that can come from anywhere. So basically just asking people to post on social media a letter, a short video, a tweet, whatever, sending some love and support. Um, And the response initially was overwhelming. It was great. Um, And we got celebrities, we got athletes, politicians, but we also got grandmothers and school groups. There was a school in New York where the whole, you know, 10 year olds, they all wrote letters and it was beautiful. There's this poet from Scotland who did this amazing thing. Um, So, you know, really the idea was just to offer a different voice and to kind of cut through the hate with, with some humanity and love. So I love that. Um, as you point out, it's slowed down a little bit. So one thing we're trying to do is get more people because, you know, there's no shortage of love needed in this moment. So anyone can still do it. You can post on any social media with the hashtag letters, the number four. So letters for trans kids with the number four. Um, so one thing we're trying to do is. You know, get get it out there more, and and we're still doing a bunch of things, um, working with a bunch of organizations. What's nice is there's no company, there's no copyright, so anyone can do it. We've seen a whole bunch of nonprofits join in, the National LGBT Task Force, GLAD, HRC, Outsports, all kinds of different groups have have kind of embraced it, which is amazing and exactly what we want. And everyone can run with it. Um, and the idea is just to Again, send some love in the first point, but also really, you know, change the narrative a little bit. So we focus on the fact that these are human beings. Um, You know, I get that people are scoring political points off our community, and part of me understands why that is. At the same time, you know, every one of us is a human being. We're fabulous and talented, and also vulnerable and scared, and not, you know, immensely you know, uh, not, um, not completely immune. You know, none of us can just, uh, sort of, I have a really thick skin. I guess I'm having a tough time saying I have a super thick skin and some days it's just too much for me. And I have a ton of resources. Um, you know, we're asking a lot of our community to be themselves amid all this hate. So I just kind of wanted to change the conversation.
1: Going back in time for a little bit, as you were navigating through your journalism career, you navigated your transition. What was that like for you? Transition, Transitioning while also being a professional, doing your job, living your life. Where, where did it seem like it, it ran smooth and where did it get hard for you?
3: Totally. And it's interesting to transport back to that time. Um, you know, I figured out that I was trans in some way in college um, I was reading this book that a friend of mine who was gay had when someone, you know, is gay and I was reading it to understand him better. And all of a sudden I figured out, like, I got to this chapter, transvestites, transsexuals and drag queens It was not a very modern book. Uh, It wasn't even modern at the time, but I hit this chapter and I was like, oh my goodness, you know, this is me, even though I didn't know where I fit in. Um, So I spent four or five years kind of not, I figured out that I was trans, but kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with that. At the same time, I was starting my career as a journalist. I graduated college. I worked at newspapers. And for a while, I wasn't sure, could my journalism world and my transness come together? Because there weren't a lot of examples of journalists out there successfully being out as trans. There were a handful. They're amazing. Uh, Most of them are friends. They're all inspirations. Uh, Shout out to Donna Cartwright and a bunch of other early pioneers, um, and some who didn't make it, who tried to transition and just found, you know, they could no longer do their job. But around 2002, I got married to my partner, who also happens to be trans, and it was like, you know, if our families can accept this, if our communities can accept this. I got to try and be myself at work like I think it'll work but even if it doesn't you know I'm not going to spend my whole career hiding who I am so this was now uh mid 2003 I was changing beats I was going from what I was doing uh had been covering Apple and a few other things to covering Microsoft I said look if I'm going to transition beats I'm going to (laughs) also use this moment to transition uh and let people know who I am on the inside um There was a lot of good that came with the fact that most people didn't have an idea of what it meant to be trans. And I know that sounds a little anachronistic, but the fact that people didn't have an idea meant they didn't have a lot of preconceived notions. So I think a lot of people didn't know what to make of it, but they also didn't have a bunch of negative stereotypes. So I sent a letter uh, first to my coworkers, kind of explaining what I was going to do in a little bit of time. And then I came out individually to all my sources. So I wrote an email, said, Hey, you know, it's been great working with you. I appreciate our relationship. That relationship's going to continue, but I want you to know this other thing about me. I'm going to be using a different name and pronoun because this is how I felt inside for a long time. Um, And the amazing thing is I got an almost universally positive response. So I was surrounded by support. I was surrounded also by a lot of ignorance. I feel like a lot of people in my company, CNET at the time, they tried very hard to be supportive and were. They didn't really know a lot. Um, They'd also known me in my original (laughs) incarnation for many years. So uh, it was not easy to adapt to new names and pronouns. Um, Some tech company people that I talked to embraced it. Others, it was a little bit harder, but everyone, there was kind of a default, especially in business journalism, of, well, we got to just go with it because we still want coverage. So I think that helped me too. What was hard about it was what was going on on the inside. So I remember so vividly in those first year or so that I trans, after I transitioned, I, you know, I would rise and fall. If someone used the right name and pronoun, I'd be on cloud nine. If they used the wrong pronoun, Like, you know, I'd be in my head all day and that was exhausting. And so I, you know, the hardest part was it was a year or two of my work just being way more exhausting because I was paying so much attention to how people were reading my gender. Um, And it was a couple years later that I noticed I was no longer putting energy in that way. Like sometimes they'd get my name and pronoun right and sometimes they wouldn't, but it wasn't making or breaking my whole day. And it was like, wow, I have so much more time and energy back. Um, but I'm so thankful I was able to do that at the time that I did, uh, where I wasn't a big national discussion my trans people weren't in the news every day. People weren't debating it. Like I didn't even talk about being trans. Like I was out there trans at work at CNET. Everyone knew I was trans. I transitioned very publicly, but there must've been 15 years where I hardly ever talked about being trans, Um, You know, I wasn't hiding it in any way. I was very proudly, openly trans. I love being visibly trans. Um, But it was kind of a non-issue. And it's been really hard in many ways to have it be this constant. It's every day, like where, you know, people are blaming trans people for inflation. It comes up in Supreme (laughs) Court confirmations. Uh, You know, every state is considering some sort of bill. Some are expanding rights, but most are taking them away. But it's exhausting. So, one of the things that was easy about my transition is I just kind of did it. And yeah, there weren't a ton of paths to follow. I'm thankful for the trailblazers that did exist, and I don't want to deny it. But there weren't a lot of beat reporters who were openly trans. But in some ways, that was a lot easier than I think it is today with so much attention focused on trans issues.
1: How do you answer those who would say, you know, Ina? You know, part of the problem is all of a sudden, all you trans people like you and that Carly Webb person always talking about being trans and trans rights, you're making it difficult for If If you guys would just be quiet and just fly under the radar, they wouldn't hate us so much. Yeah, I mean, I
3: can understand why one might think that. Um, I think the reverse is the case, and my uh, life proves it. Like, I was able to kind of just live my life for 15 years, and I didn't suddenly decided I wanted to talk about trans stuff all the time. I'll be more than happy to go back to talking about sports and tech and all the other things I'm passionate about, Legos. Um, And I still do try and talk about the things that I love. At the same time, I'm talking about the challenging times. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, you know, other people have made trans people an issue. These bills that we're seeing, you know, especially, you know, the trans sports is such a boogeyman issue out there. You know, in a lot of these states that are passing rules, they can't even find an athlete to point to about their supposed problem. You know, in the in these states in Kentucky, they passed an entire bill uh, banning kids from trans sports. There's one transgender athlete um, and she started a team and She her started school. her team. Yeah. So Fisher Wells started the field hockey team at her school. They didn't have one. She got a couple of her friends together. It still wasn't enough. So they got more people. She brought other girls into the sport. And now they've passed a bill that would essentially kick her off her team. You know, these are essentially non issues that are being made into issues because they pull well, because, you know, having a boogeyman, fear is a tremendous motivator. Um, And I'm just unwilling to allow our community. To be used in that way and our kids to be attacked in that way you know we were talking a little bit before we went on the air you know at the very elite levels trans people in sports is a complicated issue and you know you you have to make choices and where to draw some of those lines gets difficult but this youth sports thing should not be an issue like the whole point of youth sports is to get kids to learn all the wonderful things about being on a team about competition about improving yourself That's what youth sports should be about. And there's room for trans kids, non-binary kids, cis kids. And, you know, the kids thrive from this. This isn't a problem. This is a good thing. And the kids that play on sports teams with trans youth learn and love their trans teammates. Um, Luckily, we've seen some advertising from Nike, from Adidas, spotlighting some of these kids. And great, because some of them are having tremendous impact, you know. Great for Fisher Wells starting a field hockey team that didn't exist. We should be celebrating that. And instead, we're 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 banning it and we're putting all our kids at risk. If you look at this Ohio bill where anyone can challenge someone else's gender and they have to be sent for a medical inspection, that's gonna have traumatic impacts and it's gonna be used not just against trans kids, but against all kinds of kids that don't fit in. It's gonna be used against black and brown people more. We've seen. Oh, that. absolutely. You no, know, we... when you look at who the trans sports bans have impacted the most, even at the elite levels, um, it's largely cisgender black and brown people who somebody has a problem with. And so this idea that we're making anyone safe is so absurd. Like kids should not be undergoing genital inspections to play sports, period. I have a nine year old. I don't want him. Nobody, like, he loves playing soccer. I love that he's on a soccer team, but we're going to have to find a new hobby for him if someone's going to be inspecting anything. Like, that's just not okay. That shouldn't be okay with anyone. It shouldn't be okay with any parent.
1: No, it's not. And you're in the red alert, Klaxon. You know what that means? Got to take a break and give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to talk about more about this issue and we're going to take a look back at Tokyo and what it was like to be boots on the ground as a journalist during the COVID Olympics. That and more to come, I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is The Transporter Room. Stay with us. <music> and welcome back to The Transporter Room, I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay Webb, and we've got Ina Freed in the house from Axios with us. I want to read to you my hashtag letters for trans kids, and really, it wasn't anything that I came up with. It was a piece of the principles of Olympism. It's the fourth principle, and it reads, the practice of sport is a human right. Every individual must have the possibility of practicing sport without discrimination of any kind and in the Olympic spirit, with mute, which requires mutual understanding with a spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. I'm thinking of this in part because of your experience. You were one of the few, and perhaps even the only, transgender journalist who was in Tokyo for the Olympics last year, the gayest, queerest, most trans-tastic Olympics ever the first one that had an individual transgender athlete in an individual event first time ever what was it like covering these games what was it like covering that
3: moment well there were two things that made it especially unique i mean getting to cover the olympics is a great privilege especially if you love sports There really is no greater gathering of sport, and it's amazing. Um, But there were two things that made this Olympics very different. One, it was a COVID Olympics. So there were the journalists and the athletes and not many other people. We were playing in front – What? we weren't playing. I was writing. Other people were playing in front of empty stadiums. I was covering women's soccer – and there would be these huge stadiums built to handle tens of thousands of fans with maybe a couple hundred photographers, journalists, and sports officials. So that was one thing that made it surreal. Um, The other more more consequential moment is it was the first Olympics in which we saw trans and non-binary athletes. And fortunately, I think, especially for those athletes, Thankfully, it was several. Um, they, you know, each had a slightly different story. As you mentioned, there was the first individual. There was the first member of Team USA, who was an alternate, uh, Chelsea Wolfe in BMX. There was Quinn, a non-binary trans athlete, playing in their second Olympics, but their first as openly non-binary, winning a medal. There was Laurel Hubbard. Winning a gold medal, by the way. Yes. Um, their second medal, but their first as themselves and a gold medal. And that was a huge moment. Um, and I think it was so important that there was a wide swath of our community, that there was a non-binary team sport player, that there were trans women, non-binary athletes who had been assigned female at birth. So it wasn't just the story we hear about of Uh, someone who competed in male athletics, transitioning and taking part in women's sports, which does happen. And that was the story of a couple athletes, but it wasn't the only story. And it was interesting how quick everyone was to focus on Laurel Hubbard and not pay attention to Quinn and not pay attention to the fact that there was a non-binary skater who to get even noticed had to write they them on their skateboard, because that's what we do. We highlight and we you know, ruminate and we worry about trans women in sports when in fact, trans and non-binary people of all identities are competing and, you know, competing well, you know, there've been these pioneers that are having success. I always look at the uh, Women's Professional Hockey League because they've had trans men, trans women, non-binary folks, and somehow they're all managing to do it and nobody's having fits and it, it can work. Um, So I think that was sort of the backdrop that I was so thankful that it wasn't all on one athlete. And Laurel Hubbard had to put up with a tremendous amount. I don't envy her. She handled it with such grace and bravery. And, you know, I can't help but think that she might have been able to perform better if she didn't have the weight of the entire world staring at her. Um, You know, I, I was fortunate and privileged to be a trans journalist covering it. I got to talk with her a couple days later. um, And she was, you know, just so eloquent and thoughtful and humble. Um, But what she went through was brutal. Um, And, you know, it's often the case that if you're the first, you have to deal with a lot of BS. And I think lots of us uh, can point to something. But You know, Olympic athletes, it's always, you know, that's their one moment. That's their moment on the stage. It's hard enough without the additional pressure. Um, But at the same time, we had all these athletes. We got to see them compete in different ways, again, from different identities. At the same time, the Olympics itself was in the middle of a discussion that still continues about how it wants to handle trans athletes in sports. So they had an old policy that was guiding the decisions that led to who could compete in Tokyo. At the same time, I was also in the room for these meetings with the people within the Olympic movement, doctors, lawyers, human rights, athletes, representatives that are having these tough conversations around what should our guidelines be. So it was enormously beneficial. I was so glad there was a trans person in the room. I think it helped again because it's so easy to other people in that discussion Um, it was helpful because, again, everyone wanted to talk about Laurel Hubbard when they were talking about it. And I would constantly pipe up and mention that there were other transgender athletes competing in Tokyo because, you know, people only take the narratives that are convenient. It's convenient to talk about Laurel Hubbard. And we should talk about Laurel Hubbard. And we should talk about you know what's hard what's not hard you know it's a difficult conversation but we shouldn't be having that conversation without talking about Quinn and without talking about a generation of athletes that could be coming up that may never have gone through quote the wrong puberty like if we just let these kids be who they are they won't have the unfair advantage quote unquote that people are talking about because they'll just be able to go through their own puberty and that's what drives me so nuts about the anti-trans movement is You know, we could actually prevent some of the, quote, problems they're talking about, which, again, I I see as challenges, not problems. But a lot of these next generation of trans athletes, you know, may never go through the wrong puberty.
1: How important was the experience that Quinn had the Olympics at the Olympics to the bigger picture? Because I think people really give what they went what they went through and what they were a part of really short shrift. I agree. I mean, I think it's so important because what it says, um, and
3: the reason that the Olympic movement and others discount Quinn's experience is because they look at Quinn and they say, You were a girl before, you're a girl now, and they're looking at body parts. And that was really the attitude I saw. And the story to me, and I think to other trans and non binary folks, is you're the same person, yes. Like, that's the lesson is, yes, physically, Quinn was not that different in Tokyo than they were several years earlier when they won a medal on the Canadian soccer team before. What's amazing, what's awesome is they got to bring their full selves to the soccer pitch. And it's interesting because the same reason we discount Quinn, not we, but other people discount Quinn is they're saying, oh, you know you know, they just used a new name and pronoun or a new pronoun in Quinn's case, like they haven't changed. But we never apply that to trans women. We never say they were always a trans woman before we just couldn't see them. Um, And someday, I hope that's how it will be seen is that trans athletes will be seen as who they are, and will embrace the fact that they get to be their full selves. And look, there's complications here at the elite levels it is really difficult. And part of that is biology is difficult. And the fact of the matter is women, not of transgender experience, have a huge range of hormonal levels. Trans people have a huge range of hormonal levels. And it's tough to figure out where to draw the lines. But we've been doing such a poor job of doing it. We have humiliated a lot of cis and intersex women who are at the peak of their field. And we said, no, we're going to define what a woman is somewhere before we get to you. And if you look at, you know, what we've done,
1: look with, at Caster Semenya. Yeah. I mean, it's,
3: it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable. Um, and so the same motivation that we use to say we have to protect women, somehow we're okay attacking women like Caster um, And, you know, it just points to the complexity. And yes, there's a complexity there, you know, and it's very hard to figure out what the rules should be because, you know, somebody said this to me, a a professional sports athlete, you know, trans, uh, sorry, professional sports is all about having an unfair advantage. It's about having the most unfair advantage without going over whatever the rules are. So, you know, in a lot of sports, that means, you know, you can spend, you know, a bazillion hours in the gym, but you can't take performance enhancing drugs. Like we sort of have a line we understand. And yet there's people that cross those lines all the time when it comes to what makes a woman. And, you know, it's so complicated. You know, the right loves to make it seem like this is an easy question. And, you know, it's it's us that have made it complicated. They can't answer the question. And the reason is human beings don't neatly get divided into men and women. They don't by identity, as the trans and non-binary community show, but they also don't in terms of biology, as the intersex community has shown. And as biologically entirely female um, women show, there's still a range of testosterone levels. So the problem, it is complicated, it is a problem, but the problem is human beings don't neatly divide, not trans people, not intersex people, not non-binary people. But it is a challenge. Like, it is a tough conversation.
1: Looking back at your experience in Tokyo, what's the best single thing that you covered there?
3: So, this is an easy one. The, the best thing, the thing that brought the biggest smile to my face was covering um, women's skateboarding. Um, I loved all the sports. I loved softball, basketball. All sorts of things, but getting to see the women's uh, skateboarding. And the reason is these were really girls in most cases. Uh, Some were young women, but some were as young as like 13, 15, a lot of young teenagers. And they were there doing their thing, but they were there for each other. When one of their competitors did well, they were there high-fiving them, supporting them. When one of their teammates or competitors from another country fell, they were there lifting them up. There was a Japanese woman who was clearly the best in the world at this, but she had a rough games. They all lifted her on their shoulders. That's what sports is about. It was the most beautiful moment. And I got to see lots of beautiful moments. I got to see Simone Biles return, which was amazing, You know, conquering a ton of stuff that was going on for her and coming back to compete. Those are the stories um, that lifted me up as well as the trans and non-binary stories. I got to see softball, which I love, and I know you play and I play, um, return to the Olympics. Unfortunately, it's, it's not sticking around yet. We got to bring it back. Um, but I got to see Cat Osterman and some of these other veterans who'd you know, taken 12 years off of Olympic competition, not because they wanted to, but because their sport wasn't in it, come back for these Olympics um, and make a case for their sport. That was beautiful. Uh, so there were so many wonderful stories. And that's, that's what I take away from Tokyo.
1: Question on softball. Because you just had the Women's College World Series. And you just saw the Oklahoma Sooners um, end a dominant year. Uh, probably the most, one of the most dominant years in college sports I've seen. But given Oklahoma's, the three anti-trans laws they've passed just this year alone. Is it time for the NCAA to move that out of Oklahoma City?
3: Well, I think the NCAA is going to have to confront um, exactly how they implement their policies. But for a long time, they said, we're not going to put up with discrimination. Um, And they have such power because these events, you know, softball, college softball is Oklahoma City, just like college baseball is Omaha. Like, these are things that they care deeply about. And I think When you make people choose between things that they love and hate, they're going to go for the things that they love. Um, And I I think it's unfortunate that because now it's not one or two states, it's a lot of states, what we're seeing is less pressure from institutions, less pressure from companies, just because they can't boycott all the different states. Um, I would love to see the NCAA continue to push for inclusion. And here's why it matters. Imagine you are a closeted trans person playing on one of these teams. You're there in Oklahoma City trying to help your team win a championship. And all this time you're thinking, you know, this is a state where I couldn't play if I told people who I was. This is a state where they'd be worried about me going to the bathroom. That's not something that any athlete or any human being should have to endure. So What I ask companies, including my own, what I ask institutions is you know, imagine you're a trans person. Imagine your employee, your participant is trans. What message are you sending them by holding it in a state that sees them as less than human? And make that part of your decision. I can't decide for the NCAA. I'm a journalist. I'll write about it. But what I can say as a human being is, you know, think about the impact, both negative and positive, that your decisions can have. And, and let rightness be your guide. You know, so many of the issues that confront us right now, I'm constantly framing this for other people as it's one thing to think about right and left. So many of these are about right and wrong. And really, when you, when you openly acknowledge that, you know, if you're a, a good person of good heart with love for your fellow human beings. I have no problem with people letting their heart be their guide. Um, The problem, you know, is a lot of people don't uh, seem to have that love for their fellow human beings.
1: Switching gears a little bit. You're from San, live in San Francisco, but are you a San Francisco sports fan?
3: I have a wide range of interests, many of which are guided by my uh, current location. So I'm certainly an adopted Warriors fan and have been uh, for many years. I grew up in L.A. in the 80s during Magic Johnson and Showtime, and I was definitely a Lakers fan. Uh, but I certainly have adopted the Warriors. Uh, the Sharks are one of many hockey teams I root for. Um, I've rooted for the Edmonton Oilers since I was a little kid. It was great to see them make a run this year, uh, certainly the, the deepest they've gotten into the playoffs in a long time. Um, so the Sharks are one of my teams. Uh, baseball definitely have adopted the Giants uh, and enjoy it. So um, I would say I've adopted all the local teams. Stanford women's basketball is the one uh, sport that I have season tickets to. Uh, Tara Vanderveer, just an amazing coach and leader, and they bring through just amazing human beings and graduate wonderful people in addition to constantly fielding a, a final four basketball team with stellar scholar athletes like it's a joy and a privilege to get to watch them all the time so a lot of bay area sports um but i'm just a huge sports fan i had the opportunity to go uh yesterday to see the new york liberty uh play the chicago sky and you know just enjoying seeing tremendous athletes go head to head it was great game it came down to the final shot um you know i just i just love uh sports and women's sports in particular
1: well, I know one person I really like you because they're Stanford alum, Sid Ziegler, our, found, mm-hmm. uh, our co founder at OutSports, Stanford alum. Now, with that in mind, loved what you saw with the WNBA. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pitch. WNBA is talking about expansion. Isn't it time? We got to get it. There you go. Uh, you- oh, yeah. We got to get a Bay Area team. You know, I'm
3: old enough uh, when I first moved to San Francisco in 99 we would drive a couple hours to see the Sacramento, Monarch, Sacramento Monarchs play. Uh, Tisha Penichero, Monica yeah. Griffith. Uh, great, great teams. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't have um, maybe the world's biggest fan base, but it was hugely loyal, and it drew um, not just Sacramento, but Davis, San Francisco. Uh, I think the Bay Area, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want a team. And I know both Oakland and San Francisco are being considered, and I think it'd be great for women's sports. Uh, for the Bay Area to have a team because as much as we have incredible teams at Stanford and Berkeley, we really don't have uh, professional women's sports to the same degree. We've had some with soccer, um, but I would love to see it. You know, I would be a huge fan and, and there as often as I could be.
1: I have to know. Favorite Stanford Cardinal player all time. Who's yours?
3: There've been so many greats, but uh, I'm not going to dodge the hard question. Uh, I would have to go with Neka Wu um, When she arrived on the farm, you know, she showed us things we'd never seen before, uh, and continued to do that through her four years. Uh, it was amazing to see her and Chennai together on a team, healthy, playing together. Uh, they were incredible. Um, you know, there've been just an array of wonderful athletes, and again. Not just great athletes, but great human beings that I've been fortunate enough to witness. But, you know, uh, I, I, there was the one thing missing in Tokyo. We didn't, we didn't have NECA. Uh, that was the biggest oversight was the uh, leaving out of the Igwumakes and NECA in particular from the Olympics. So I'm going NECA Igwumake.
1: You do write about tech. So do you like reading about it or watching it? Yeah, we're at the nerd geek part of the program now is there any sci-fi or any tech stuff you're grooving to comparatively little. So, um, I was watching, uh, what's the
3: Apple one where like they separate your, uh, work and personal life. I think that's fascinating. Um, severance, I think. Uh, so I started watching that. I'm not, I'm not that far along, so no spoilers. Um, that kind of captured my eye, but I'm not a big sci-fi person. Um, and mostly these days, I just want an escape. Like, I watch The Office uh, to relax for <laughs> sports. Um, so there's not a ton of sci-fi. Um, sorry to disappoint both you and Don. I'm not a Trekkie. Um, <laughs> you know, appreciate all the barriers they've broken of both uh, science and gender, but, you know, hasn't been a big part of my life. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of a disappointment from a sci-fi perspective, I guess.
1: Going back to sports, though, burning question in the Bay Area. 49ers quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. What do you do with him? Trade him, keep him, cut him, release him. What happens next? I mean, you got to do something. You got to either fish or
3: cut bait, I think is the expression. I'm not a fish person. But, um, you know, you've got this tremendously talented quarterback. He's either got to be your quarterback or somebody else's quarterback. You know, in San Francisco, we seem to have a trouble recently committing to – a quarterback and you got to commit. You know, I would have loved obviously to have seen them commit to Colin Kaepernick. Um, I think he's done a tremendous amount for the world and for sports. And I hope he gets a chance somewhere soon. Um, But you know, whether Jimmy's, if he's not going to be our quarterback, let's send him somewhere where he can be someone's quarterback because he's, he's got the talent to be someone's quarterback. And if he's not going to be ours, let's uh, see what we can get would be my
1: take. Getting into the home stretch, though, because we've talked about a lot, and it's been great having you on the podcast. But I want you to give another pitch for Letters for Trans Kids, because I think now more than ever, especially in this Pride Month, and I've been I've been saying this all throughout the Pride Month that it's time for Pride to get a little more radical again. And it's time for the fight back spirit to come back. So I'm going to step back and let you tell people why it's important even more so that this hashtag shouldn't just die away. It needs to intensify now.
3: Well, first off, I I also want to acknowledge it isn't sufficient. Like we actually need to protect trans kids. And that means stopping these hateful initiatives. It means making sure they have the resources, the mental health support, all the things they need to thrive. But one thing all of us can do right now is just write a letter and say, hey, kid, I know it seems rough right now. I know you're hearing a lot of voices of hate. I just want you to be who you are. And, you know, that was my letter. When I started this off, I launched the campaign and I wrote my letter. It was like, hey, kid, I don't know you. I don't know who you are, but I want you to be happy. And I want you to be whoever you're meant to be. And if it takes a while to figure that out, that's okay, too. That's what being a kid is really all about, is figuring out who you are. Not just your gender, but what you like, what you don't like. Um, And it's so easy for people to get involved. Again, all you have to do is go to any social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat. Heck, some people are doing it on LinkedIn. I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever you use and use hashtag letters, the number four trans kids, post a short video, a handwritten letter, a photo of a letter, a tweet, any of it. And I think, you know, cumulatively, we can have a big impact, and we already have. And, you know, I'd love to see even more love out there for kids getting to be who they want to be and who they are.
1: Well, you heard it. Right here, right now, I want everybody in Transporter Room Nation, I want you to get down with this hashtag. I want you, let's, let's get it trending again. I want everyone in Transporter Room Nation, all of you download this show, all of you who listen to it, hashtag letters, the number four trans kids, get on it, write a little something, copy and paste whatever you have to do, but let's show some support. And not only that, let's keep the, let's keep, let's get the fight back, back in our prides right now, because my community damn well needs it. And, and Ina, I'm telling you, it's been, it's been great having you. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to want you back. Yeah, I want to come you back gotta, and just talk yo, sports. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no. We're going to definitely talk sports. I'll tell you what. I'm going to bring you. We're going to do an NFL kickoff edition coming up here at the start of September. It's the NFL season. We're going to do a trans people talk in the NFL roundtable. I want you to be a part of it.
3: Sounds great.
1: I want you. And also, just a to note to all, to all my TJA peeps, Trans Journalist Association, yes. I've been trying to get a round table with you people from with all of my TJA peeps for months. We're we were playing. We're going to do we're still going to do a trans McLaughlin group. I want to do that in July or August. And we're definitely doing we're doing it. We're doing trans people talking NFL preview in September. So, yes. Yes. Do you feel called out? Good, because I'm calling you out. I want you here in this forum Ian Freed, Thank you being on the transporter room this week you keep writing that great text stuff. doing again like i said i want you back
3: thanks harley it's been a pleasure and thanks for all you do to uh make sure that trans sports is a conversation that we're having not just about who gets to play but you know as fans as people um because there's a lot of trans people that love sports and i'm glad 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 your podcast exists
1: well coming from you i'm taking that as high compliment and it's a high honor I'm going to beam you back down so you can keep doing what you're doing. And I want to thank Ina Freed for being on the show this week. Ina is a a pioneer and an icon among trans folks, especially as a journalist. And I want to thank all of you. All of you out there in Transporter Room Nation for being a part week to week and keep lifting me up as you've been for the past year since I started hosting this thing solo and Just a reminder, is there somebody, is there something you want to see? Is there somebody you want to see on this show? Is there something you want to say about what I'm doing? Please leave a message on our Twitter page, on our Facebook page, or at our Instagram page, Transporter Room 10 Forward, because everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for each and every one of you, the people who support what we're doing. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper and study as she goes. I'll catch you all next week. And remember, pride is a fight back.